Here we go again for some more hot air. But never has the title been more churlish than this week because I'm having a serious conversation about the world with the utterly inspiring Andy Cato from Groove Armada. You may well not know, but Andy sold his publishing rights to the Groove Armada back catalogue and invested all of it and more into a farm in the south of France because he was so utterly appalled at how conventional methods of farming were ruining the planet. Without any experience, he was convinced he could do it better. He was convinced he could make a success of organic farming. So he just went out and did it. And the story of how he did it is just great. And beyond that, we discussed the wider issues around organic farming, the geopolitics, the food chain, the cartel of chemical companies and government subsidies. It's fascinating stuff. And at a more base level, how the hell can you be a member of Groove Armada when you're manning a farm 18 hours a day? All will be revealed. What started it was um, reading an article on the way back from a gig in um, Kazakhstan about, uh, and the article was about industrial agriculture and what it and the catastrophe that that, that means. And uh, the guy said, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. That was his closing line in the article. So what started it was thinking, um, okay, I need to do the first step. I need to become independent and grow my own stuff. And where I lived, everyone was everyone had vegetable patches. So my first step was to do it like the neighbour did. But that was the beginning of a long learning process about what to do to the soil and what not to do to the soil, which I'm, which is a learning process that will last for the rest of my life. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, doing it like the neighbour did kind of didn't work because he's um, he's he's a farmer. Who's a very very good farmer in, in that style, but who's been brought up in the the generation of, of pesticides and sprays and weed killers and that's his vibe, you know, that, that's not mine. And did you ever try and change his mind about it when you became more adept in the art? Uh, no, I don't, because all those guys who are all around me who are farming like that, you know, I think you have to be humble insofar as they've been doing this for lots of generations. Uh, a lot of them are older than I am. And um, it's not up to me to go around telling them what to do. I think. And anyway, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now is because the only way you change anything is by, by showing that there's a different way that works and, to put it bluntly, that you make more money from. Oh, that's interesting because uh, one of the angles I was going to go down with this was it, how is there a business case for this organic farming? Make the case. Uh, well, there's lots of aspects of that question. I mean, there's the there's the simple there's the simple fact that uh, uh, we're living in a very distorted market. So the idea that, that all this cheap food that we've got in the supermarket uh, that's only cheap because it's all based on oil, oil fertilizers, all pesticides, all pesticides, all based transports, all based on oil, and and fossil fuels are the most subsidised industry in the world still. So um, uh, so it's it, so as a starting point, oil-based food is subsidised by us to a massive degree. Secondly, that food in the supermarket means that we've got uh, huge climate change problems because by destroying the soil to make that kind of food, we release all the CO2 from the soil, we put it in the atmosphere. Uh, we create a, uh, a health epidemic of obesity and cancers because there's no nutrition in the food. 
we get flooding, we get all kinds of environmental degradation, the ecosystem on which we depend is, is ceasing to exist. So um, the, the idea that, that, uh, that that's cheap in any way is absurd. It's actually costing us literally the earth. It's just that we're putting off the payments for a few years, but probably fewer years than people think. So the first thing about the business case is to say that uh, there is no business case for what's going on now. In 30 or 40 mm. years, it will no longer function. And in the meantime, it's making us ill and it's destroying the, the planet on which we depend. So that's the first thing. So there isn't, doing what we're doing is not an option. Mm. And, um, and, and, and so you go to the other side of the coin and say, well, if we can work out a way of farming where um, the soil gets better every year, which means there's more carbon in it, which means there's less carbon in the atmosphere, uh, and it means that if you've got more carbon in the soil, you've got more nutritious crops. So there's a there's a, a, a virtuous circle there where we, we can improve our soil quality, which means we eat better, which means that our nutrition and health is sorted out. And um, uh, and by localizing our food production again, it means that we're not susceptible to all these shocks when there's a drought in China and everything goes wrong. You know. And so we can get into this loop where we deal with, um, we, we take a big chunk of CO2 out of the air, we make everyone healthy again, we don't need to spend billions and billions on, uh, on the NHS because people are eating stuff because they don't get ill in the first place and so on and so on. So we've got a choice between going in this vicious cycle towards certain end game for the temporary benefit of a handful of big corporations who sell all this stuff or getting into a virtuous cycle for the benefit of everyone. So for farming specifically, you had a different way of cultivating soil than, say, your neighbours. Could you just quickly explain what that is? The basic idea is that, um, for reasons which we haven't got time to go into, we, we got into a culture where, first of all, the plough became this ingrained thing that we do. It's quite an interesting story, but it's too long, so we'll just say that's the case. <laughs> and, um, and then, after the Second World War, all the chemical weapons people switched the factories around to making fertilizers and pesticides and so there was this huge marketing of this in quotes modern agriculture to provide market for that so basically what happens is when you turn the soil upside down it's like turning the ocean upside down so the bottom feeders find themselves on the surface and the plankton go down to the bottom so all the soil life is is at best uh, severely dislocated. So it disrupts the worms. Oh, and, and all the in a handful, in a teaspoonful of, of good soil, there are more creatures than humans have ever walked the earth. It's an infinitely complex system, and it's the only thing that creates life on earth is topsoil. And so when you turn it upside down, it messes it all up, and it means it doesn't function properly. And you could say, well, why does that matter? Well, that matters because it means that the soil dies, and after a dead soil is desert, and it means and it matters because. All those millions and billions of creatures are what give the plants what they need so that when we eat them, we get something out of it. So, uh, um, and by turning it upside down and messing all that up, the plants grow in there, they get ill. And so, because they get ill, you put on pesticides on there and you just go round and round and round and round because by doing that, you kill the soil even more and, and, and so you go down towards desertification. Hmm. So, basically, the name of the game is how can you cultivate crops without loads of weeds, without turning the soil upside down, without using chemicals? And there are actually many, many ways you can do that. And there are lots of people who've been doing it for a very long time. It's just that those solutions are free and no one makes any money out of them. And is the other factor that um, it, it will take you longer to get a better yield, that there's going to be this transition period of a few years before it actually makes sense to do it? Yeah, the whole idea of yield is nuanced as well, because 
one of the things that struck me going into a farming world from outside the farming world is that all people talk about is, is quantity. They say how many tons of this and how many tons of that. They never talk about quality. Or when people say you've got to eat five fruit and veg a day, they never say which five. But a, a tomato grown in a fertile composted soil in August is nothing to do with a tomato grown hydroponically in December. You know, there's a, there'd be a strong argument for not eating that second tomato rather than eating it as well, perhaps for five a day. So we never talk about uh, the, the quality of what we're, we're getting off the field. And so the starting point with the yield is, suppose we cut the yield in half. Well, if we cut the yield in half, which is about what happens, uh, that means that you're producing within the capacities of the soil. So you're actually getting crops with got stuff in them. And we throw half of our food away. So we're producing twice as much as we need of empty calories and then throwing half of it away. It's ridiculous. So if you produce half as much in the first place, but distribute it locally to avoid all this waste, then you eat proper food. Yes, so, you know, this gets us on to consumerism and the hold that supermarkets have on the supply of vegetables. Clearly it's driven by that, that quantity makes sense for a market that's driven by supermarkets. Can you ever actually see this changing in the near future? Because they've got such a hold. Yeah, well, um, eventually it will change because the current system will stop working. So it's, by, it's, whether, it's whether we, uh, it's whether we, we change it in a controlled national way or we wait for panic, you know. Like for example, just, uh, just this uh, January, I think it was, I saw that uh, the bit where they grow all the supermarket salads down in Andalusia was, had got some extreme weather, which obviously we're going to see more and more and more of. And uh, shock horror, there was no salads in the... Yeah. In, in the supermarkets a few weeks, and, and they found that idea so appalling that they took a huge hit to fly salads from California. This is something <laughs> which anyone on their windowsill can grow. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, uh, and try buying a courgette in West London. There's a bit of a shortage of those. Yeah. We are beginning to see cracks in, in the, the supply armor. chain. There are, there, are, there are a few chinks in the armour. So the system, the system will change. Um, uh, it has to be hoped that it can be done in in a in a controlled fashion. I'm not sure about that, but what but what is um, what we need to get our heads round, and we're a long way from that, is that any discussion about public health or climate change or all the big issues of today, that is actually all a discussion about soil and how we treat it. Mm. And unless and, and, and this is this the the, 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 the reports to, to governments go back 200 years or, or, or Roman tracts talking about, you know, without this few inches of topsoil, there is nothing. And uh, we've lost half of it. And the half that's left is pretty dead. And we need to be really careful. So we're, we're seeing trouble with topsoil that's been cultivated too much, becoming dust, becoming useless. You have to get deeper and deeper to get anywhere with that. That's one factor with soil. What, in terms of another, another point that you've made on your site is about how much carbon the soil absorbs. Could you just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, well, the, the, the world's agricultural land has far more potential to stock carbon than the world's forests do. It's potentially a vast carbon sink. What it's actually become is a vast source of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And uh, the problem with that, apart from the fact that we're cooking ourselves, is that uh, in terms of soil, carbon is organic matter. It's 
same thing. Organic matter equals fertility. Fertility equals nutrition and life on Earth. So um, as soon as you start putting up in the air, you're losing nutrition and life on Earth. As soon as it starts going back in again, you're gaining that. So uh, it's absolutely imperative that we start reversing the cycle. And the only reason why we've been getting away with it for, for a couple hundred years in the West is because for thousands and millions of years, either forests with their leaves deposited layer after layer after layer of organic matter, which became this what we call hummus, which is the kind of the, the real fertile core of the soil, or where there was grasslands, there were untold hundreds of thousands of bison and herds of cattle that were grazing and grazing and grazing year after year. And that's what created these soils that we call, for example, the Great Plains in America, where it was you know five feet deep of beautiful black soil, most of which had disappeared. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, uh, if we turn the cycle the other way and start farming in a different way, then not only do we start eating proper food and stop getting ill so much, uh, but we can make a really massive difference. Just to give you an example, photosynthesis is so powerful that if you stopped returning carbon back to the air, so in other words, if all decomposition was stopped for a while, obviously you can't do that, but just to give you an idea, in 10 years, there would be no carbon left in the atmosphere at all. That's um, that's how much wow. leaves can, can can withdraw. And you, uh, so obviously we can't stop decomposition. We don't want to do that because that's part of the cycle of life. But if you imagine that the world's agricultural land is seventy percent of Earth, we could make an enormous difference in ten years if, from tomorrow, we did things differently. Yeah, and I'd like to go back to the individual farmers' role in all of this. So that, you know, they are, it, it was an interesting point that you've made previously about that farmer, I think in the US in the 1950s, who realized as soon as he had a motor car, he suddenly needed to, to make money to put fuel in it, yeah. and that he was suddenly part of the system. And I mean, that, that's a very interesting point. But of course, farmers in this day and age, it's rather difficult to just turn back the clock to a point where they don't have to run a car. And of course, if we look at what you've made a living out of previously, you know, and still do, DJing, music, that's, that's, that's consumerism, that's something that, that's disposable income that people will spend money on. Um, every farmer, while they might not be watching Groove Armada at the weekend, they're going to need disposable income. Can they actually get enough disposable income from farming in a more... Um, holistic way that you're proposing? Yeah, well, you know, that this is, is, is a good question, and uh, I became convinced that you could, uh, uh, and that one of the reasons why I've got quite a big farm rather than just a vegetable patch, and why I sold my publishing rights to get it, is because I thought the only way you're actually going to move stuff is this point is you can talk about it, it's good to talk about it, but you can talk about it as long as you like, but what you need to do is to do it, and you need to quantify it and show that it works. And, and come up with a model, a model of farming where you're there and you are making a living. I mean, you're never going to be rich being a farmer, being being well, being a reasonable sized farmer trying to do things properly. You're never going to be rich, but um, but you'll be rich in lots of ways, but not financially rich. Yeah. Um, but but you can make a living from it. And um, I'm now getting to the point with the farm where where this year um, I could just about hang on if I had no other income, and from next year when um, uh, when I'm going to have to live off it fully because the stuff will be finished. So um, uh, 
and it, it's going to work. I can see that now. It's going to work. But what you can't do is uh, you can't say, right, well, I'm going to start farming differently, and I'm going to sell my reduced but nutritious yields to to Tesco or to whatever your kind of you don't you never get to Tesco, but the people underneath Tesco, who, yeah. the Kellogg's and all that kind of people, you know, you can't do that. You, you can't live off that. So um, uh, what you need to do is you've got to go the whole way. You know, you need to get direct to consumers. And if you cut out those middlemen, then you can make a really nice living off doing things differently and, and, and feed people properly. But so you can't, you need to do the whole hog, you know, it's like a, you need to do, you combine local agriculture with different ways of doing stuff in the fields. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the technology makes this more possible than previously that you can basically create your own supply chains online for starters. We, I guess we don't, the consumer doesn't necessarily need the supermarket, but it will obviously take a long time to change people's habits. But just going back to where you were, um, where you say next year the farm would probably sustain itself. I mean, what year are we in now that you've been doing this? Five. Five. Next okay. year will be, will be five. But the only reason why it didn't do it sooner is because I made loads of mistakes. Yeah. You know, at the, at the beginning... Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't inherit any. I've never been a farmer. My farm, family's never been a farmer, so at the beginning, I not only had to buy the farm, but I had to buy everything else, you know, tractors and all the rest of it. Now I don't use tractors anymore, but buying that stuff and then realizing that I don't want to do that for the because because the results I got in the field was nightmarishly expensive. So someone who already knew, knows farming could crack it a lot more quickly yeah, well, I think when someone if they open their minds someone that knows farming but also there are you know I'm not saying I'm not such a great uh, uh, agricultural innovator but I have discovered certain systems which work I've assimilated other systems that other people have been doing some of them 4,000 years old some of them from last year but there, all this information is out there um, to make a, a switch to sort of low cost low infrastructure farming from 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 day one and that's where it's at and that's what i didn't do for the first two or three years which is why it's taken me another two or three to to get made up of water again mm, yeah interesting um so just tell me about the acquisition of your farm you know didn't it, it's quite autocratic the system in france isn't it like land isn't given up easily didn't you have to pitch and, yeah, and yeah. tell them why you were worthy yeah, it was quite a, kind of a nightmare, but at the same time, it's good and it's bad. You know, I mean, um, the, the fact that it's regulated is why I can afford to do it. There's no way I could afford to be a farmer in the UK because I couldn't afford to buy the land. It's five times more expensive, and the reason why it's five times less expensive in France is because it's regulated. So you can't like, build a golf course or buy it on the, yeah. knowing that you're going to get planning permission in two years' time, uh, or to get tax breaks against your inheritance tax. All these mad reasons why people buy farmland in the in the UK. So, on balance, I'm in favour of all these regulations, but the reality of these the regulations is, is that, yeah, some land comes up for sale, the neighbouring farmers are all, always priority, and if there's more than one person who wants to buy it, they hold these committees in these sort of dusty village halls <laughs> where you, you go and say, I am so-and-so, and this is why I want the field, this is what I'm going to do. And everyone knows each other, of course, apart from me, although I knew, know a few more people now. Uh, but um, and what on earth did they think of this English guy with, with different ideas as well? Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I said in those, <laughs> in those uh, sort of interviews, whatever you call them, I now realise were just embarrassingly <laughs> really, 
I'm horrendous. But actually, all like these things come kind of sometimes do. It all came out in the wash because the place that I ended up with three years after beginning the search was was the right one. But and so, how did you manage to get the jump on the neighbours and the local? Well, owners? purely and simply, this is why it's been financially hectic. Is that it was far bigger than what I was looking for, uh, but it had water. It's got a lake. And uh, certainly going forward, I think having access to water, I mean, even now, once again, we've got like uh, high 20s in March, you know, no rain forecast for two weeks. I mean, the, the wheels are coming off pretty quickly in terms of seasonal reliability. So it's got a lake, which I kind of realised was essential. Uh, but basically, there's a clause which says if it's a farm that's sold with the buildings, and someone comes up, comes in who wants to buy the lot, including the buildings, that takes priority over people who want to cut it up into pieces just to get the fields. You see. Ah, okay. So I had to go in there and get the lot, but that's why I had to basically sell everything. So you sold all your publishing, you're publishing what, what so else? I sold all my publishing rights and took out an enormous mortgage and uh, it's hectic. Yeah. <laughs> but I bet at no point have you regretted it? No. No. It, no, no, it, no. Because one of the things that uh, that strikes you when you when you when you go from a world where you know a, a Google search takes a nanosecond, or testing out a bass sound in the studio even takes a few seconds to scroll between all the sounds, to something where uh, you try something and uh, you wait a year and you see how yeah, that's worked, and you think, well, okay, that's that's worked, but that's worked under those weather conditions in that field. So. I'll do that four or five more times, and then I know if I've got a system. And quick, very quickly, your your perception of time and life changes. And you know, you think, well, if I'm lucky, I've maybe got 25 harvests left as a sort of physically mobile adult. It's not, it's not in the blink of an eye, you know. And so, very quickly, uh, all kind of mad striving just kind of fades away, and you realise that you know, at the end of the day, you're you're just part of this kind of growth decomposition cycle in a different way. <laughs> and so, uh, you, do you think that there are analogies with the way that you approach making music and the way you approach your music career and how you deconstructed the marketplace and the products and what you did? Uh, are there analogies with what you did with the, with the farming? Do you feel creative in a sense? Oh, the farm farming is, you know, I think it's uh, Plato or something like that said it's the it's the only profession for wise men. You know? <laughs> I mean, it is it is uh, it is the ultimately creative thing. You know, I mean, you're basically you're out there. No one. Well, it depends actually. I mean, a lot of modern farming, um, the the type we were talking about before, uh, you're basically sitting there and you get a text message from the from Monsanto or Bio or whatever saying sow your hybrid so-and-so today with doses of this, that and the other with it and you go into your tractor and you type in the doses and you put the GPS on and you sit there, you know, and it goes up and down. So that's not particularly creative. But that's EDM. Yeah, yeah, exactly, that's the EDM of the farmer, exactly. But um, uh, yeah, so you know, you, you're, you're out there and it's like in this infinitely variable world uh, and you've just got to kind of think it through and, and do a lot of observation of what's going on naturally and how you can kind of hijack that and use that and work with those movements to get what you want out of it and then try it and just just go makes you happen basically it's like delivering an album <laughs> and i mean how 
how how did it go how has this gone down with tom for example or you know your management or whatever that more and more time is being spent on this farm and less and less time on the groove armada project uh i've always been pretty open about it i mean you know there have been the odd points of, of friction in that um you know tom and, uh, and obviously the management guys that's their bread and butter so you know so they would much rather that, that we were doing more gigs and all that but at the same time, I think it's the kind of um, uh, project that really doesn't do it justice, but whatever, where, where when, you, when you explain to people, this is what I'm doing, and this is why, and come and have a look if you want, uh, just there's something kind of innate, and just everyone gets on side, you know, people yeah. just understand this, 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 it matters, this stuff, and, um, and there's, an in, there's an instinct in us still, despite all the stuff we're looking at out this window here in Victoria, and, and the fact that more than half the world's population are urbanised, uh, all this stuff is inside us still. And uh, I think there's a sort of intrinsic understanding that what we're doing is is just kind of got to stop. Yeah, and and do, do you actually feel happier now than ever getting out of bed that you're part of some process that means something? Yeah, I don't know because it's, I asked myself this question because um, there are also you know high points during the, the 20 years of <coughs> Groove Armada chaos, which were extremely high. I, mean, I don't just mean sort of chemical ways, but I mean <laughs> sort of, you know, in a, in a, just, a, in a, they're just absolutely amazing moments of sort of unified force, you know, when, when things are at their peak on, on the stage, it's kind of amazing. And I don't think the fact that those, you know, when you're playing in front of 8,000 people at Glastonbury and it's going absolutely mental and for those kind of hour and a half, everyone's in it together. I don't think the fact that that isn't kind of solving topsoil problems means it's not valid either, you know what yeah. I mean? I think that's, that's, that's also culturally really important, those moments mm. of togetherness and, and where you just escape. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't have changed that either. You know, yeah. I wish I'd got to the farming thing a bit earlier because I'm a bit short of time to find out what I want to find out. I certainly wouldn't have uh, have not done uh, the, the the previous bit, but um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I I'm always up for getting out of bed, which is just as well because I have to get out of bed about three in the morning. But no, I'm super excited, you know, and it's just and um, uh, and, and motivated. But it is uh, it's not like I'm kind of sitting around drinking rosé, asking people to make nice cheese, you know. It's like it's full on, and I do ask, and it's quite distorting having the option to go and do a gig because sometimes like you know I'm doing like 18 to 20 hours without exaggeration at the moment day after day after day and I could um, go and get the money that I'm going to make in two months in a weekend yeah. being brutal about it you yeah know? and so sometimes when you haven't seen the kids for a few days and you're just absolutely knackered and thinking you know I'm not 21 anymore this is not as easy as it used to be uh, you do like say what the fuck am I doing you know why am I putting myself through this sod the planet <laughs> <laughs> there are moments like that, but they're, they're but they're rare and they don't last. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 alluded to it before that you said something like all this will be over in a year's time. So are you no longer going to be touring as Groove Armada in in a year's time? Well, it's been going down and down, and um, 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 you know what's great is that you know we're still. The, the, the rare occasions when we get together in the studio and do a tune, it's been right up there in the Beatport charts, and it's, it's vibey you now. It feels like when we do the gigs now, DJ wise, they're probably the best DJ gigs we've ever done, you know, because we've sort of turned the boat around and um, been sticking to our guns and just playing the kind of house that we love 
Whereas a, a quite a, for a while when we were DJing because we were, you know, a, a chart band or whatever, we were on those big kind of you know fat boy slimmy stages. Yeah. And that's you know we can do that, but that's not our thing. You know our yeah. thing's always been the basement groove. You know. Yeah. And now we're doing like you know tonight at Brixton Academy or or um, all the gigs we're doing now. They're they're they're, they're great. We're, in the, we're playing amongst the right people. We can do what we want to do. So actually, it's never been better in that regard. Um, uh, and so it might be that we decide to, to, to do a few, or not, it's nice to have the choice. It's nice that the, the, the boot's still on our foot after 20 years. But you're not assuming that this time next year you're going to be working on an album or anything no. big like that? No, I mean, the, obviously the big point of next year is that it's the 20th anniversary. So if we're ever going to do uh, a one-off reforming of the, the live band, because the live shows work pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and if we're ever going to do that again, obviously it's next year or bust. Yeah, and, and you're rumming and ahhing about it. Because you don't start as the sort of guy that would particularly just want to celebrate 20 years like, and, and look backwards in that sense. No, no, the reason for doing it would, would be purely selfish in that that group of people, the musicians and the crew, uh, you know, we had a, it was just a 15 properly mental years you know? yeah. it's brilliant and they're an absolutely amazing group of people and there was a from all the crew guys who've worked with lots of other bands there was there was just no bullshit there was there's an atmosphere amongst all those people that was really really special and so my my main motivation will be uh, well my two main motivations will be to get all that gang back together one more time because they're a great gang and for my kids to see the geek ones so yeah. it's entirely selfish. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's a pretty good motivation. I mean, I remember speaking to Laurent Garnier in a, in a similar sense where he, he decided to, I think, create a, an album recently. The main purpose was because his kid would have been old enough to understand it yeah. and understand the body of work and what it meant to people and that he wanted to create some sort of a legacy but it was in the nicest possible way of yeah. creating a legacy not not to be revered by millions but but for something a lot more personal and yeah, and, yeah, nice. and, and i can imagine the camaraderie of traveling with all these characters all yeah. these roadies all these musicians god it must have been something else it was something else. <laughs> yeah, was, there was, there was, a, there was a comment from our from our, our drummer Martin Carling, a Yorkshire lad like me, and uh, we were talking to I don't know it was, somewhere we were talking to some girl who just got married, and uh, and she's saying oh yeah 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 it was just, you know it's the best day of my life and he says best day of your life you haven't been on tour in Australia with Groove Armada. <laughs> I can imagine in a Yorkshire accent that's particularly effective. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were good times. Yeah, brilliant. So, back to uh, the slightly more anodyne issue of supply chains yeah. and fertilizers and chemical companies. Um, was it difficult for you? in the first instance to, to not go down that road like but the, I assume there is a chain of sales reps and systems that are quite hard to break yeah very hard to break and uh, when, when they when they heard that I, I bought the farm I had this extraordinary morning where I was called into the local basically what they call cooperatives they're not at all cooperatives they're just subdivisions of big agri-business companies uh, who sell all the seed and fertilizer and all that 
and um, and this young lady in there, uh, who's a local rep, had invited two neighbouring farmers who were on their books, and she basically started saying what was going to happen on my farm, and how the work was going to be divided up between those two guys who were sitting at the table. And it was mad until obviously I let her sort of go on for a bit, then just got up and left and said, no, this is not going to happen. <laughs> uh, but when when you do that, then they they, they can make life quite difficult and um, it's quite it can be quite aggressive in their, in their marketing and uh, the whole infrastructure of, of the farmers union equivalents and all that it's all based around whether you're organic or not because I was organic from the beginning but it's all based around input based farming because that's where all their bread's buttered so the guy it's stuff which needs big machines yeah uh, needs lots of diesel if you're organic, okay, the fertilizers are made differently to non-organic, but the idea is that you buy all your fertility and stuff from outside and bring it into the farm, because it's in that movement, in and out, that all those people get the cut of the cake. Capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, um, so how long did it take you? So, was it from the beginning you thought they were mistaken, basically? Like, what was your timeline? in thinking, oh, hang on, I'm not going to do it the normal way. Well, from the beginning, I was sort of like, I know I, know I don't want to plough, because uh, I'd understood that, but, um, uh, and I was sort of working on the basis that I was going to do kind of like what they call shallow cultivation, so not touching the soil too much, but touching it a bit. And, um, and basically, uh, it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. I had, and you could just see him driving past and laughing, you know, there was just like, fields full of weeds and, um, and thousands and thousands of pounds of losses on seeds that I couldn't harvest. I mean, it was, it was a disaster and, and, um, and super, super stressful because I didn't have many financial margins. I mean, everyone, you know, everyone sort of thinks, oh yeah, it's uh, like the guy from Blur is just messing about being a gentleman farmer. It was not at all like that, you know, it was like right on the wire and there was about uh, six months where I thought I was gonna have to sell it again. Because it was just too, too, it's hit after hit after hit. I mean, that's a big hit, because I can imagine that Groove Armada's publishing rights or your share of them were worth a fair bit. Uh, well, yeah, but you know, but um, basically that uh, that was sort of 70% of the price of the farm. I borrowed 30%, then I had to borrow another load for all the machinery. And then then you start buying seeds. Well, I don't buy any seeds anymore now because I, I, I sort of cultivated or multiplied my own varieties and. I don't buy anything now, really. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what changes the game. But at the beginning, I was buying stuff all over the place, and uh, and it wasn't working. And uh, and I realised that um, you can get rid of the pesticides and the and the herbicides, and that's <coughs> that's obviously good because they're lethal toxins. And uh, but you replace that in normal organic farming by weeding in very intricate ways. You know, all kinds of like things we get between the plants, over the plants, around the plants. What that means is that you go over the soil again 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 and again and, and every time you do that you're breaking down the soil structure and so the soil gets worse and worse and worse and what nature does when the soil gets worse and worse and worse is to send it send in plants who are designed to sort out shit soil things like dock leaves yeah. thistles all the things that we don't want so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so so what then so you said in the beginning all these seeds you, you'd wasted a heck of a lot of money and it didn't work so what actually changed well, it was just a it was basically a sort of double or quits moment where i was like this is not working um uh, at the same time the vegetable patch that i had was really working and what i noticed there was that it was sort of three or four years uh since i 
I, I haven't turned the saw at all. I haven't done anything at all to the saw, apart from um, putting all the crop residues on the top. I just kept planting through all these residues. And there was this transformation in the, in, in, in the soil and basically a pretty much total absence of weeds. I was like, this is what I need to do, but on 250 acres. And I was scrabbling around trying to find out how to do it. And I came across this research of this guy in, in, in North America somewhere who'd come up with this, but I won't go into all the details, but basically it's a way of creating kind of like the kind of straw that you put down in your vegetable patch to put your tomatoes through. Yeah. Creating that idea on a field scale and being able to create that, that straw and plant through it on a field scale. And I just thought, that's what I need to do. And so uh, it was real double or quits because basically to do that, you have to plant the crop by the seeds and plant the crop that's going to create the straw mulch, as you call it, first and get that up and away and then find a way of rolling it down so it, so it dies naturally and then find a way of planting your next crop that you actually want to harvest through it. So is that over a year in the making? So that, that whole process uh, from beginning to end was 18 months. Christ. Uh, but, it, but, but it worked and it, and it worked amazingly well. And that was the, that was the turning point. And that's also when, the, when people started stopping on the road and saying, how did you do that? Because next, next to it, I did, a, I did a version normally because the only way to sort of, you know, with that fact, you're just a bloke with an opinion. So I try to be quite rigorous about yeah, saying, yeah. here's, the, here's the, the, the temoir, here's the French word, what's the English word, the, the control, exactly. And, um, and, and, and the yield and the, and the vigour of the plants was just night and day. So wh when you did this, I mean, how confident were you in months? to let's say that it was actually going to no, work not at all. No, i was looking very very sketchy <laughs> there were lots of things went wrong and then when i went to the big moment sort of roll the thing down to create the straw and to sew through it it didn't work and it was really really sketchy so it is a bit of a long story but when, when i finally saw these rows of green coming up through rolled down straw that was a proper champagne moment i mean a short of like first radio play on Pete Tong and, and, and the arrival <laughs> of my children, that was right, right up there. Yeah, I, I can imagine, because, I mean, I've presided over a failed business myself, and, and actually some decisions that I made towards the end were just, in my mind, I think, well, they might work, it's a big gamble, it will cost me a lot of money, but actually, this is more to protect my mind afterwards, to say that at least I tried x yeah. so i could then sell the business it sounded a bit like that you might have been in, in that kind of headspace at that point where you're thinking well if i'm going to go down i'm going to yeah, go exactly. down fighting yeah and it, was, it was very much like that <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very much like that and and was this quite a hard sell to your family uh well i mean for, for the kids they were um, they, they were just living on the farm dad's busy you know and uh never very little so a bit less little now, but they were very little. So um, um, that was that, as far as it went. And uh, for my wife, yeah, I mean, uh, she was very, because she was very much convinced about the, you know, the need that we need to sort of get involved with the people who are trying to show there are different ways of doing things to what we do now. Because if not, our lives are going to, our kids are going to live lives of unimaginable misery. I don't think people realise this, but uh, it's going to be miserable as hell for them. Yeah. And so once you realise that. Um, anything else kind of seems relevant really so, so, she, so she was very much down with giving it an idea 
she was rightly very sceptical about how I said it was going to be, wasn't going to take up too much time, it'd be pretty mellow. But she was sceptical about that from the beginning, so she was proven right. And uh, yeah, no, I'll tell you, my, my, my hat off to her that, um, you know, we'd, we'd be far, far, far better off, financially speaking, and a lot more relaxed if I'd never done any of this. And, um, and so I'll take my hat to her. But at, at this point, before the tipping point where it all came good, were there people within the local community that were in your ear and perhaps her, her ear saying, this is how to do it, and, and they were showing conventional methods which she was very much against? Was that a problem, trying to sort of say, no, I, I know what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, no, and it's tempting, you know, because they, they were coming around saying, in a nice way, yeah. um, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. We've been farming here for 60 years, and this is never going to work. The soil here is like this. You need to do this, that, and the other. And, you know, the third or fourth time that you've got your fields are just like a sack of shit, <laughs> and they've got their, what to our eye, uh, is uh, the ideal field. So it's like very neat rows of green, yeah. not one blade of grass, you know, uh, again and again and again. They nail that stuff, you know. I mean, it's, my opinion is catastrophic the way of doing it, but they absolutely nail it. You can't, you can't argue with that. Yeah. So when that's happened three or four times, you're just like, you know what, I just want fields to look like that. I just want to be able to pretend that I'm a farmer. But you were in so deeply, it didn't matter about bloody-mindedness, yeah, <laughs> that was just how it was going to be. Yeah, that's okay. and, and also, I, you know, I, even in those moments of utter despair, uh, I didn't, um, I never fully lost sight of the fact that fields that look like that are a real problem, and, and the whole idea of doing this is to not have fields that look like that, actually, but I need to get to when it works. Yeah, and they're obviously subject to the disagreeable supply chains and the expense. So their overheads would ultimately be higher than yours. Well, well, there's you know there's guys there who um, and I, and and I, and I feel for them because they're they're they've got a lot of debt on farm machinery. They've got a lot of debt to fertilizer salesmen, and uh, and they're they're knocking the ball out of the park with that type of farming year after year after year. They have these fields that are just where we are is more maize. So they have fields full of, of perfectly lined up maize and um, and they're losing money every year. By the time they've by the time they've taken off their costs, is the, the price of maize is not enough to even break even. They do it because that's what they do. Yeah, and, and they feel such shame. I mean it's family mainly families down generations, am I right? Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's just the culture of that that's that's what you do and they just keep batting on but uh, you know, my accountant was saying to me that uh, she does just does uh, agricultural accounts, and she was saying that eighty-five percent of her clients for the last three years have lost money every year. I can't go on. No, it can't. And how much of a factor are subsidies in all this? Are they stoking it all up? Oh uh, yeah, well that's what we. Until I got the farm, I never understood because you know, traditionally, well, until one hundred and fifty years ago. About 70% of the population were involved in agriculture. It's now less than one. Wow. And, uh, and so people, so less than 1% of people involved in growing our food, which is absurd. Uh, um, uh, and, and so I never really understood why so few people, and therefore so few votes, got so, had such, had so much of an ear of the government to get what are these really quite generous subsidies. I never understood that until once you get into the thing, you realise that it's not the farmers that are lobbying for the subsidies, it's Monsanto 
and the tractor makers and the diesel sellers and all those people, they're the people lobbying for subsidies because without the subsidies, they have no business. Because without the subsidies, the farmers can't buy any of that stuff. Yeah. Because what's happening, what was happening until about uh, three or four years ago where I lived was that your crop, your field work, would come out at zero. So what was left for you was uh, to pay your debts and stuff with the, with the subsidies. And you might have a few grand left over to, to live off if you're lucky. Uh, uh, but even that isn't holding up anymore because mm. rather than just getting nothing from the field, they're getting zero, minus from the field. So how much of a factor is the EU in all of this? Is it too unwieldy to maybe to, to change this? Are the subsidies from the EU too habitual? Where, where does that fit in? The, the thing equation? is that you can't, you can't just touch one end without touching the other because you know, if, you, if, you, if you cut off the subsidies tomorrow, then uh, every conventional farm in Europe is bankrupt. Yeah. You know, and 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 uh, and, uh, and will take with them uh, a lot of people in the in the agribusiness supply chain, and obviously will take with them the supermarkets because they're not able to farm anymore. So the whole thing will collapse. So uh, you you need to it needs to be a holistic uh, uh, change. You know, you need to see, but it's like all this. this it's a Brexit conversation. Is that all this all this bullshit talks about how the problem is always somewhere else? If you actually want to sort stuff out, yeah. you can sort stuff out, and you don't need to. Um, y but it's much easier to say, "Oh, it would all be great if it wasn't yeah. for that." Yeah. But actually, well, you know, if you want to sort stuff out, then okay, from tomorrow, there's no vat on uh, food which is um, grown and consumed within a hundred mile radius, for example. So. For a start, then you've got a huge motivation for, for relocalizing agriculture. Uh, from tomorrow, um, uh, people who farm in a way where there's a measurable increase in, in carbon in their fields from year on year can tap into uh, the, some of the money that we use for flooding, some of the money that we use for carbon offsetting, and some of the money that we, uh, we use for our health service because carbon means fertility, means nutrition, means health. So there's a million ways we could tackle this problem from tomorrow if people wanted to. Yeah, it, but but it's it's an interesting uh, it's a paradox in a sense where you say that if we want to do it ourselves, then we can. But of course, some of the things you're proposing there could only ever come as central government directives. How is that ever going to happen? Well, that, well, that, well, that, that, that was in response to your thing about is the EU too unwieldy? I'm mm -hmm. just saying. Uh, Governments can't blame the EU because if they wanted to do stuff, I see. they could. Yeah, got you. Uh, but but my opinion is that it's nothing is ever going to come from the top because yeah. there's a revolving door between Bayer and Monsanto and the government and yeah. every government. You know, it's just yeah. a total revolving door. So nothing is ever ever going to happen from the top. And all we're going to hear from from government sources and the newspapers that that repeat them is that the only way to feed the world is GM crops and drones that can drop pesticide bombs and all this crap that's going to. Yeah. lead us towards densification of, uh, of our agricultural soils. And so the only way to do anything is to just do it. And, um, and part of that burden of just doing it is on the farmers. Uh, and so to get to say to some guy who's like up to his neck in debt and you're asking him to completely change the culture of mul multiple generations, become a marketing guy, become a local sales guy, packaging guy, do all this stuff, websites, whatever, it's really hard. So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a role for every time you buy food, that money is determining the future of the planet. 
So yeah. as a food buyer, you've got a position of enormous power. So, so food buyers, um, if you if you can't, not everyone can farm, but people can get together and say, right, there's a hundred of us here, and we need this amount of bread, this amount of beef, this amount of lamb, this amount of vegetables, whatever. Become aggregators and then go and find the farmers and say, listen, we've got a guaranteed demand here for a certain amount of this stuff. We'll buy it off you every month and whatever. You just need to grow it for us. You know, it needs to be it needs to go both ways. Yeah, I mean, and it is, it is technically possible. You, you do see some pleasing little things across England, and I dare say in France as well, where villages maybe get together and buy certain produce. It can be done. It's just going to, it's just going to take a heck of a long time to do it. Now, what, what, one thing that I'm wondering about in this equation is that you've said that about 1% of the, the globe is farming. Well, the West the West, different elsewhere. The, we, the West, yeah, okay, the Western world. Now, if everyone farmed in the way that you did, or something similar, even though you say it's not all about quantity, would that actually be enough to feed the burgeoning population? Yeah, the simple answer is yes. And anyone who tells you uh, uh, no, it's just lying. Okay, so what, I mean, obviously it's difficult to give me empirical evidence, but what, what, could, what could you give to back that up? Well, again, the first thing in all those, in, in this conversation every time, is that the implicit in that question, which a lot of people ask, is that we can feed the world doing what we're doing, and we can't, because it's bringing us towards desertification and, yeah. and, 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 and the end of the road. Yeah. So we've got to rule that out first, uh, because that's always the thing that implied in that question is that we can do it the other way, we can't do it the other way. Mm. It's not going to work. So um, from that starting point, <coughs> supposing that um, we say that you know you can produce 10 tonnes of wheat at the moment for, for a given surface, and uh, if we rest, um, rest up the French way, uh, if we stay within the natural productive possibilities of the soil, um, that's going to level off at five, so half. So we, we, we'll cut our cereal production by half. But um, linked to that is uh, if we relocalize everything and we cut out all the middlemen, then a given amount of land can support far more people. So while we think that existing agriculture is effective, or efficient because we see the guy in the massive machine and he's a master of 10,000 acres and he doesn't need anyone else to help him, whatever. The, the equation there is manpowers per tonne. And in that measurement, it is efficient. But in terms of energy, there is 10 times more energy going into a conventionally cultivated field than comes out as food. Yes. That's supremely inefficient. Yeah. Uh, and so if you relocalize agriculture and then cut out all the money that goes to the big combine guy, then you can employ far more people. So in that way, that opens up all kinds of opportunities for diversified farms, in which around that cereal production, you could have huge amounts of vegetable production as well. And then all that, and after the vegetable production, the pigs come through to clear up the residues. And, and by getting back to mixed farms, which is the only basis of sustainable agriculture anyway, you massively increase the food output of a given unity of land, whilst at the same time massively increasing its quality from the diversity that comes with that. Yeah, I was going to ask actually, where do cattle fit into this? So, so when 
when researching this interview, I, I concluded that perhaps we might need to, to eat less meat as a human race in, in, in total, and, and that that would help farming overall. Is that is that fair comment, or can we... Can uh, we get... It is and it isn't. I mean, the, 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 the problem, the, the, we're in this absolutely absurd situation where we feed herbivores grain. Yeah. And the reason why we do that, again, is an interest story we haven't got time to go into. It's all to do with candle wax, actually, originally. But anyway. <laughs> we'll come you back. can't leave that yeah, unqualified. I'll, I'll leave that as a hanging one. <laughs> so, so there's like, I think it's 70% of Americans' cropland is growing grain to feed to cattle which shouldn't eat grain. Uh, and because because the cattle eats the grain, it, they become ill because they're not meant to. So it acidifies their, their innards. It makes means that the meat quality is shit, mm -hmm. uh, and it means they have to have loads of antibiotics and so on. And they get huge amounts of pollution, of water pollution, by gathering all the cattle in these feedlots and feeding them grain. The whole thing is an absolute disaster. And so industrialized meat of that type is an absolute disaster, and we need to eat not less of it, but none of it. But People who say we just eat soybeans, it, it obscures a simple but um, fundamental fact that fertile soils in, 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 is based on a mixture of animal and plant life. And you might only want to eat soybeans or lentils, but you need fertile soils to grow them in. And to have durably fertile soils, you need a mixture of plant and animal life. And, and so you need farms that are mixed. You know, if you put, if you, you need plants that farmers that include forage plants, not just crops for harvesting. It's like we've, we've always done until relatively recently. So, what should we feed these animals if it's not grain? Well, grant, you know, cattle, sheep, even uh, even even poultry to a degree, but cattle and sheep, they herb, they eat herbs, they eat grass. And what happens when grass eaters eat, eat, eat grass because grass and these cattle evolved together? is that you get increasing, as long as you graze it properly and you don't graze the point with the bare earth, it all goes feet on. But if you graze it properly, then what happens is what happened in the Great Plains of America or all across Europe, where you just build up huge amounts of carbon, therefore fertility, therefore nutrition, in the soil. And that's what we've been living off. We've been living off the interest of all those cattle before. Yeah. So what we need now is farms, and not farms where you have the cattle over here and the crops over there, but where everything's mixed. And so the cattle at, the, at our farm they're the ones that get the, the field ready for the next seeding. You know, they, they eat all the residues to prepare the thing that the, the cattle's the cattle graze everywhere and that you know those become a kind of work tool basically. So really we need the amount of animals that that's uh, that stimulate that that make that process work. So we need enough inverted commas to uh, to make the project exactly, and to I make to make the locality work, we should not get greedy and put more animals on a piece of land that can't sustain it. Basically. No, exactly. It needs to be balanced. It needs to be. It's always a question of equilibrium. And I suspect I haven't done the calculations, but uh, I'm in the process of trying to do the calculations. And I suspect that what you'll find is that if you divide up farms into these mixed things, where there's just enough cattle to to, to augment the fertility of the soil to make sure that the crops that come out of the farm are nutritious and so on, it will probably involve eating, uh, you know, a Sunday roast and a chicken a week, you know. It's probably, yeah. everything tends to come out <laughs> common sense in the end, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. We can theorise about it all we like, but yeah, you're quite right that, that it's so often that it's a straightforward conclusion where you go, all oh, right, well, that's, that's pretty obvious, really. Yeah. So... So do you think that um, 
So what, going back to what we were talking about about 10 minutes ago, where you're saying that in many ways the burden is on the farmers, but these farmers are in a lot of debt, etc., to change the way things work. Another part of the burden, probably the biggest part of the burden, is the consumers. Am I right? That we need to change our habits. Well, I think people just need to realise that they do need to, you know, we've got this thing where, where, and it's not by chance, it's because it's been marketed into us over a few generations now, where, where food is just, uh, you know, that half of the food in America is eaten on the move. You know what I mean? Yeah. This whole idea of food as being at the very core of who we are, this whole idea that you are what you eat because you are what you eat. That's what you're made of, you know, and, and, and that food is this moment of cultural exchange and families to unite and all this kind of stuff. On every level, it's just utterly fundamental. But we're in a situation where everyone wears Gucci but shops at Aldi, you know. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, the, you know, we need to get back to this idea of, of the vital importance of food, yes, for your health, and, uh, and because by the way we cultivate that, we secure our place in an ecosystem or we destroy an ecosystem, uh, and therefore ourselves, it's a straightforward choice. And also because the ritual of food, uh, when it's positive food, is fundamental to our, our social well-being as well, those moments of exchange. Yeah. Uh, and we're in a situation now where, where when you bite into a Burger King burger, the only pleasure that you can get from that is based on ignorance. You need to not think about the chemicals they put in there to make it taste flame grilled. You need to not think about the, the cow and how it was treated, how the people had to deal with the cow were treated, the fields in which the grain for the cow were grown and all the crop sprayers that went on that and the millions of insects that were killed because of that and then the birds. So the whole pleasure of that is based on ignorance. If you think, you can't enjoy it. Whereas we need to get back to enjoying food that's based on knowledge based on the fact that we've taken a positive step and that this is something where we're living off, off nature's bounteous interest and we're not cashing in the capital. Yeah, so consumers stop sleepwalking and that will perhaps drive change. At the end of the day, every time you buy food, you decide the future of the planet. Yeah, interesting. Well, we'll end on that salient soundbite. Thank you very much. Love you. <laughs> What a chap. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed that conversation. I did not edit one second of it. That's how good it was. Uh, there are a couple of things that Andy said specifically that really hit home with me. Uh, one was what he said about the chemical factories after World War II suddenly needing an excuse to make money and that farming basically became their bread and butter. While I haven't cross-checked the validity of this, it certainly would explain a lot, like the arse-about-face nature of, of this loss-making farming. Um, but Andy also gave some real hope that the very same basics of capitalism that appear to have got us into this ugly cycle of chemicals and agricultural machinery, but where the farmers still seem to lose, well, it can get us out of it as well, i.e., if it does indeed take 10 times more energy to cultivate a field using machinery and chemicals than it would if you did it his way, then you've actually got a heck of a lot of margin to play with, which, as he said, you can use to employ more people, and as long as you're able to get your produce to the market, it's actually profitable. 
Uh, the benefits to the environment of organic farming are obvious, uh, but I really wanted him to make the business case for it as well, and I think he actually did. Uh, so now that's the food chain sorted, um, I think we can safely go back to the world of music. Uh, this is Groove Armada's latest track, uh, and judging by what Andy said, it may well be one of their last. Uh, it goes by the name of Tune 101, and this will end the show. Thank you for listening. See you next time.